Hello and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we focus on elements of the scriptures that make them become more real because we believe there's power in the scriptures and the more real they become to us, the more we can draw that power into our lives. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and I'm excited today to be with my good friend and colleague, Dr. John Gee. Dr. Gee is also at BYU and uh, as an Egyptologist, uh, obtained his degree from Yale uh, five years before I did in 1998. Uh, and has been uh, the William Bill Gay Chair of Egyptology. Uh, he can correct me on that if, uh, in a second, but uh, at BYU ever since. And so, uh, welcome, Dr. Gee. Good to be here. Why don't you tell him a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, first of all, I'll just say we're, we're in Cairo. We're sitting in a hotel room in Cairo right now. Well, in Giza, actually, near the pyramids, it seemed like if we're going to do Exodus to Egyptologists in Egypt, might be a great thing. And at the base of the pyramid, they're right over there. Yeah, yeah, just across the street. Um, So, uh, yes, um, as you said, I am the William Bill Gay Research Chair uh, at, uh, or William Bill Gay Research Professor at Brigham Young University. Um, I have been doing Egyptology a long time now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true for a very long time. Well, so uh, what we're going to talk about today is really the end of kind of that Exodus story. Now, we're not getting to Sinai, that's next week, uh, but the end of that Exodus story, uh, because we start with the actual Red Sea crossing and so on. Uh, so we're going to, to not talk about everything in there, but uh, whatever things Dr. D uh, would like to talk about. Uh, and so, John, why don't you just uh, tell us, is there something in here you'd like to talk about or you'd like to share? Um, well, this is one of the um, more surprising episodes in the scriptures. You don't particularly, most of us don't experience water's Parting to and fro. I haven't. Uh, I haven't either. Um, But we can, and some of us do have examples of uh, a metaphorical parting of the Red Sea, as it were. There are miracles that we find in our lives. Uh, And we're actually commanded in the Doctrine and Covenants to liken this to ourselves. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but as we look at the, the text here, one of the things that's interesting, I guess, as archaeologists, we, we deal a lot with physical objects because that's what gets left behind. And so one of the, we look at the, the physical objects, we've got an itinerary here um, in verse two with Piha Heroth, Migdol, and Balzaphon. And they are going around these places to get near to the Red Sea. And there's some debate about the exact location of the Red Sea or the Reed Sea at this point. And we won't get into all of that, I, I don't think, other than as much as the places are named, they're not necessarily known, although we have a colleague who thinks he's been digging at one of these. Yeah. And maybe I'll just say, uh, 
that uh, on my uh, YouTube channel, besides the scriptures, a real channel, there's a class videos channel that there are videos I created for my classes, uh, but I've made them available to others. They're very hokey, but I, I, I have a map on there where I go through some of the possibilities and explore some of that. So if you want to geek out on that kind of a thing, uh, that's it. That's a good place for that. But uh, we probably won't pull out the maps and the, all that kind of stuff right here, but. Uh, but there's an itinerary and this would have been meaningful to an ancient audience. And just as if you were telling your trip through, Oh, let's say if you're making a trip from Salt Lake to California, it would make a difference whether you said you were passing by Las Vegas versus passing through Battle Mountain. Yeah. Or, uh, or Reno. Both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Both of those are places in, in Nevada. And if you, and they make all the difference with telling which part of California you're going to and where things are located. But not having that information makes it more sketchy. And that's one of the reasons why there's not an agreement about which place they're going through. Yeah. Or even which place they end up where Mount Sinai is. Right. And, and so it's okay to speculate on those. And somebody may be right. It's a lot easier to get it wrong. But... <laughs> But it's it's okay, and it's okay if we don't know the exact route. It would it's one of those things that would be nice to know, but we don't. And one of those cases, sometimes they talk about the problem of well, we don't know where any book any Book of Mormon lands are located. Well, in some cases, we don't know where some of these places in the Bible are located too, and that's okay. It doesn't undermine the scriptures that we don't know what they knew back then. Yeah. In fact, it would be, in my mind, more suspect if it named all sorts of place names that are more modern and we know where they are. That would be a little bit more suspect in my mind. And some of these place names change all the time. My favorite example of this is when they were in the 19th century when they were drawing maps of Egypt and they went around um, asking the locals the names of place names. And one of the things is, what's the name of this body? Oh, that's Wadi Musharraf, which is Arabic for, I don't know. And so there are all kinds of Wadi Musharrafs on the map. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's and, great. And so and there's basically saying, well, I, I don't ask, what's the name of this one? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, great. and so there are these place names that are assigned modern times that may or may not match with the ancient ones. Some of them get preserved well, and some of them are preserved less well. Yeah. Um, Jerusalem, for example, in Arabic is Al-Quds, and mm-hmm. there's no way you'd get Jerusalem, which means the holy place. There's no place you'd get Jerusalem from that if that's what you're if you're looking for some sort of sound correspondence yeah all right so enough about geography uh one of the things when they come back here they says this is down in verses five through nine pharaoh has had problems deciding to do the right thing throughout exodus um sometimes he almost gets persuaded and then he changes his mind and so it could have been easy, but he's made it really difficult over mm. the time. And this is what's happening again here. The 
he actually lets them go into the wilderness. They and all the Egyptians have given them money and said, "Get out of here! Please go, <laughs> get lost." Uh, and he changes his mind and decides he wants them back. And so he makes ready his chariot, and uh, they get the chariots and they talk about the all the chariotry. And this is um, something that Egypt didn't always have. So uh, Egypt, the chariots were introduced into Egypt later than they appeared in other places in the Near East and, uh, and along with horses. And, you know, we have some horse burials from uh, the second intermediate period, mainly from the 18th dynasty. And that's around the time the chariots get introduced. And and there's a reason for that. And it's that the primary mode of travel is boat on the Nile. And that works so well for them. And, uh, and it, other things don't work as well. When you get very far away from the Nile, you're in the sand. They don't work as well. So boats become such a, a thought process. When they think of travel, they think of boats. That it's not surprising that they don't start doing things with with chariots as early as places that aren't as easily accessible by boats. Well, even in Babylonia, there's a letter from uh, Hammurabi of Babylon to Zimri Lim, the king of Mari, and they both um, joined forces and conquered this town called Hit. And the question is, who gets it? <laughs> and the argument that Hammurabi makes to Zimri Lim is Hit has bitumen, which is pitch. They seal their boats with it. It's, you know, it's the Arabian Gulf. They've got oil oozing out of the ground. Um, So he argues that they ought to give Hit to the Babylonians because it's got pitch and the means of transportation around Babylonia is boats and the means of transportation in Mari is chariots. Yeah. And so... Well, chariots for the rich, but because um, yeah. uh, horses take, well, and even then they use a lot of donkeys instance, for their chariots, but horses take a lot of uh, feed. Uh, they're, they're expensive to own and to maintain. Yeah. Um, anybody whose daughter has ever asked them for a pony or a horse, um, and has looked into it all, knows that this is a rich man's hobby. Yeah. Yeah. They, they it was very bad, expensive yeah. to maintain. Very expensive to maintain. They, they cost a lot. Uh, yeah. Some of, so we, we have records from Egypt in later times, and the, one of the most expensive animals you can buy is a horse. Yeah. So, but the Pharaoh has a lot of them because you hook them up to a chariot and they can do some great things. And we have lots of examples of, the pharaohs and chariots shooting bows. Now, back in Abraham's time and down in through Joseph's time, the Egyptian army didn't have any chariots, any horses, and this comes in later, but it comes in before Moses' time. So, yeah, it probably comes in somewhere around Joseph's time, but in between Joseph right. and uh, and before Moses is, is where we're looking at. Yeah, right. sometime in that time. Yeah. yeah, definitely not Abraham. Day. Yeah, maybe Joseph's day. Yeah, maybe just the beginning. Know. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's somewhere in there. But they don't have a large army, and they do by this time. 
And in fact, a lot of the generals came up through the chariot ranks, and you can tell this from uh, the inscriptions that have been left behind. And so, of course, he's going to get his chariots and come out into the army. And this is actually the heyday of the chariot in the Egyptian army. Um, soon after this time period in Egypt, the chariots get a less, little less used, I think partly because they are so high. And I think by that time, people had figured out ways to get around um, having or the effect, military effectiveness of the chariots. Uh, people have a way of doing that, too. That's your military technology. And if you look in the history of the Middle Ages, the military technology changes. They do castles shaped this way, and then somebody figures out a way to take advantage of that structure of the castle, so they change it to a different way. Uh, it's constantly changing because... It's always a trade-off. This gives you a certain advantage this way and disadvantage that way. Yeah. Um, and in this case, it's going to be a disadvantage because they get all the chariots and they lose a bunch of them. They don't work well in the sand and they don't work well underwater. Yeah. Or, or in mud. Or, muddy, yeah, muddy, or in mud, yeah. That's, muddy area that's left when water has just receded from it. So. You know, that's one of the things that um, you have to think about is, is real. One is because... Um, vacillating leaders are something that people tend to have some experience with. You know, there are decisive ones and they're all sort of these cautious ones and different, they excel in different situations. And in this case, the Pharaoh decides to go after and get the slaves. I suppose something we could say about slaves, know a fair amount about slaves in Egypt, they're expensive. You're basically taking on somebody else in the household. And yes, you get to boss them around. And in certain cultures, you can beat them or kill them. But that's another mouth to feed as well. Yeah. And house, even if it's only a small part of the house, even clothes, even if it's small clothing, uh, there are all sorts of expenses. And so if they're not in turn generating greater expenses for you or greater income for you, which typically only happens in agricultural labor or construction or something like that, uh, then they're, they're economically not worth it. And, and so you have to just have enough wealth. If you want someone to just serve you, take care of you and pamper you or whatever, run your household, that kind of a thing, they don't generate more wealth. So you, you just need to be able to afford that outgo because there's not a corresponding income. Yeah. And so uh, we know some records about slaves. There's one um, text that my hieroglyphic students are reading right now that ends with them talking about the hundreds of slaves that Pharaoh gave them. And that's a dead tip off that contrary to what he says in the beginning of the text, that he's not exaggerating that he actually is because rich people had maybe three. Really rich people had maybe a couple dozen. But for the most part, nobody has hundreds of slaves except Pharaoh and the temples. Yeah. Yeah, it's institutions have large groups. Yeah. So, but they were a, a source of fairly inexpensive labor. Now, some, some in ancient times, some slaveholders pretty well adopt the slave into the family and make them one of the family, even if they're second-class citizens, so they don't treat them 
really badly and some of them just treated them horribly you know just like some bosses are good and some bosses are terrible so you, you can't oversimplify it but pharaoh doesn't seem to be treating these slaves very well he doesn't particularly care about them i chances are before moses came on the scene he had given them very little of any thought if you're building a big city and you need a large construction force then you can imagine what would happen in the middle of the building project now if all of the construction workers in the entire city left so he hardens his heart pursues after them horses chariots horsemen his army overtook them encamping by the sea and uh with a good piha hero is a good egyptian name yeah, yeah. migdal actually seems like a uh, a Hebrew name, but uh, but it's actually a loan word into Egypt, uh, Egyptian. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. good. It's a tower. Yeah, yeah, it means tower. Uh, so, and maybe I will point out, uh, and I'll give credit to Jeff Chadwick for pointing this out to me. But I think there's a great irony when we get to verse eleven, when when Pharaoh does come with his uh, his armies, and uh, they they see him. And the army that's about to destroy them. And we talked last week about spitting fire and this kind of thing. But uh, but the, what the Israelites cry out, there's a great irony in here, uh, verse 11. And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Now, Egypt's actually known for its graves. Yeah. Right? <laughs> people think that Egypt has an obsession with mummies. Yeah. Um, and I guess in some ways that's true. But I don't think that it was... As much a, a thought on it as uh, certainly as Egyptologists give it, uh, but as most people give it, uh, except that death was very frequent in ancient Egypt. Yeah. So as we know it was that, everywhere. It's right. Like, yeah, but yeah. We, we know that, uh, for example, a third of all babies born would die before their first birthday. And half of all babies born would die before they hit puberty. Yeah. Yeah, and that, it doesn't seem to be higher in Egypt than elsewhere. We just know more about Egypt than elsewhere. Yeah, they kept um, better census records. But uh, but probably in many ways, life, in, at least uh, in terms of uh, nutrients and so on, was probably easier in Egypt, say, than in Southern Canaan or something. So those, those mortality rates are probably true everywhere. But uh, so I would agree. They're not as obsessed with death as we think they are. It just turns out they understood that death or after death lasts for a long time. And so they built those things to last and that's what has survived. So that's what we find. And we find less about their living. Well, also but, they built them in the desert, which right. preserves things a lot better right. than down where you're doing your plowing and, um, and, and it water floods supply. every year yeah. and washes away. Who yeah. knows what? Yeah. But it is true that Egypt had built some spectacular tombs yeah, and everybody knew it. And so it is, it is a little bit of an ironic thing to say, what you brought us out here because there are no graves in Egypt because obviously there are graves in Egypt. So I think that's just a, a, a fun little irony that they throw at uh, Moses um, when they feel like they're going to die. Uh, and at this point they haven't, I mean, they've seen all these plagues, but nothing has really worked very well for them. So I, I'm not going to, uh, say, well, what don't they understand? Uh, they're about to see the greatest example of God's delivering power, but they haven't yet seen it. 
Uh, but I do think this is, uh, I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a in your face kind of a thing to, to throw at Moses uh, because of the irony. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and while we're actually talking about the graves and we're sitting below the pyramids, you should know that the pyramids have been around for a thousand years before the children of Israel got them. They weren't doing those. Pyramids are made of stone. They're working in mud brick and they're building cities in the Delta. Right. Right. Instead of tombs. Right. And the, the capital cities there, the excavators out there have to constantly pump the water out because it's all below the water table. Yeah. Yeah. So things don't last as well there. But I think it is a point well taken that when in the days of Moses, the pyramids were already older than any building in North America and than most buildings in Europe. So uh, that's that that's uh, that tells us. I mean, this this is already ancient history for them. Yeah, this is it's been around a long time. Yeah, and, and in fact, one of the ironies is uh, you know the Exodus happens in the New Kingdom, and the Middle and the Old Kingdom are already ancient history by that time. So then they they come out to the Red Sea, and Nobody is expecting this. It's not even clear that Moses was expecting this. Moses gets this instruction and says, why don't you go out? So here they're trapped. They've got the sea on one hand and the Egyptian army on the other, and they're caught in the middle. And first thing is a pillar of fire comes down, and, and this is a standard reaction. The horses get scared. Yeah. And Which I would guess horses would. Yeah. I, horses I, are flighty. They get scared easy. Yeah. And, and uh, if you actually watch some of these documentaries on Hollywood films where the horse has to do something like go up into the fire, um, there's a, a trailer at the end of the, or not the trailer, one of the extras on the DVD for the Lord of the Rings talks about how the one scene they have this horse comes charging in and they had to figure out how to film the scene without getting the horse spooked by the flames. Yeah. So yeah. It's a real, real problem here. And chariots don't work without horses working in tandem. Yeah. So that is going to cause the Egyptians a problem, but, and it's going to hold them off for a while because it takes a while for the, the dry ground to appear, right? The, the, if you uh, read what it says. Well, and so we're looking at, at verse 19. Thank, thank you. The angel of the of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. So meaning darkness for the Egyptians, light for the Israelites. Uh, and Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night that's not a quick deliverance. And so that's, I, I think it's worth our thinking, you know, we, we kind of think in terms of 10 commandments or Prince of Egypt or something where boom, it divides. Right. right? But uh, this has to be nerve wracking to all night. I mean, it's just what's the going on. Is it going to work? Yeah. The wind's howling. You've got people on the other side that still want to kill you. And you're not sure exactly what's happening here. Uh, my guess is it's going to take a while for it to become clear that you're going to have a path to escape. All you know is that wind is blowing here like crazy. And yeah, and you've got this, this cloud, you're hemmed in. You didn't know 
beforehand what you were going to do. And then the Lord prompts Moses to stretch his hand out of the sea and then causes all of this, but it's all night. And then in the morning, you have a path, you have a way out. And you wonder how many of the Israelites were then saying, "Um, I think I'll stay here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it it really, I think it's more, it's easy for us today to say what's wrong with them. They're murmuring, they don't believe. But I I think this would be a more difficult, scary experience with less experience in seeing that God will deliver them than we have to give them uh, credit for at this point. After this, you know, that's a different thing. They know God can do these things. But at this point, Nothing God has done has really worked except for that finally it let they're let go. But then it seems like this is not working out. And I think it's 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 got to be a bit of a scary thing. So, so oh, then at this point, maybe we ought to look at um, Doctrine and Covenants 8. Oh, good. That's what I was, I was looking in Section 6, and I couldn't find it. Ah, it's Here it is. 8, verses 2 and 3. Oh, there we are. That's exactly what I was looking for in the wrong section. Well, let's start with verse 3. It says, Now behold... This is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. So this, it's done by the spirit of revelation. But it's the verse before. Yeah. It says, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. So this is one of the early revelations to Oliver Cowdery, who... Um, you know, when Oliver Cowdery meets Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith has had about seven years of tutelage, some by an angel, but you know, he's, he's, he's seen the father and the son. He's seen an angel multiple times. He's tutored once a year by an angel. Now gets these is using a Urim and Thummim to translate. He's learned how to do that. This is all new for Oliver Cowdery. It's his first experience with revelation. And, in some ways, there are, probably, there are probably a lot of the children of Israel for whom that was their first experience with Revelation. And it says, I'll tell you in your mind and in your heart, which will dwell upon you. The other one, which is in section six that you were thinking about, is I will, did I not speak peace uh, to your mind right. about the matter? You would have to have at least some measure of peace to your mind to take the exit route that the Lord has offered them. But I do find it significant. I mean, we, we tend to think of like Moses hearing this voice or some, but, but it seems to me if I'm reading section eight correctly, that the way Moses knows to turn around and lift his rod and part the Red Sea is by a, a, an inspiration experience that is very similar to what most of us have mm-hmm. uh, this in, in our mind and in our heart. By the Holy Ghost, which dwells in our heart. Uh, I think uh, by this point, I assume Moses has had a little bit of experience with inspiration, right? We're at the other side of the 10 plagues and all that kind of thing. And, uh, but burning bush. uh, Yep. But this is, uh, um, this is a remarkable scripture story. And we tend to think of it as being more dramatic uh, in terms of Moses' communication with God as more dramatic than it appears it was. And I think what that should do is help us understand the importance of the experiences we have with the Holy Ghost. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of, uh, 
of a story. And I, I, and since it's not me, I'm wondering just how much of it to tell a, a recent time, but I think I can, it sounds a little vague, but I know of a woman who is facing serious health challenges in her family and really worried about it wanted to know that everything was okay and said was sitting in the hospital and looked out the window and saw a rainbow and at that point the spirit assured her that everything was going to be okay and it was now that doesn't always happen right um to everybody but it's that sort of and even at that point even with the witness that everything was going to be okay, it was still six months before she was sure from a natural sense that mm-hmm. it was going to be okay. Right. And six months of constant problems. So, but enough reassurance to go forward. Yeah. And that's, that's significant. In fact, so, uh, my my audience will maybe laugh at this, but uh, accidentally, a common theme on this podcast has been uh, the need to commune while we commute. So our commute to be with God uh, is yeah. not going to be successful if we're not communing with God. And I'm surprised at how many, I shouldn't be surprised. I, I should say I'm pleasantly happy uh, surprised with how many episodes that comes up in. And I think here it is again. This, these are the Israelites trying to commute to be with God at Mount Sinai. And what they need is communion to know how to escape the Egyptians and get there safely. But the communion comes in the same way it comes for me and for you and for all of us. And we just need to take that communion for the significant and important thing that it really is. Uh, recognize it for that and press forward knowing that maybe it will be six months, maybe it will be all night of a howling wind. Uh, And it's interesting because as we're sitting here, it's been incredibly windy the last few days as we were up excavating at the pyramid uh, when you and I were both just there. uh, It was sand blasted is what we were as the the sand, uh, the wind. I mean, like as we were walking along a ridge that we have to go to back and forth, I really had to lean into the wind so that I wouldn't be blown off the ridge. Um, and hold on to my hat, right? Uh, and, and so I can imagine out in the desert with a howling wind, uh, and I'm listening to the wind howl through our, our window right now a little bit. Uh, it's, uh, this is a frightening thing, but all they had is this inspiration like we all have uh, that, that, and they're, that the prophet gets, and they just have to trust this prophet and wait to see this work. And I wonder how many times we need to trust our prophet and wait to see this work. I think it's, it's the same thing. We have our prophet in the last five years has told us a number of things, many of which have been hard for some people. Yeah. Many of which seem easy, but or may seem easy to some people, but are hard for others. And, and many of which the winds of the world have howled at us about. It's, it's, it's a case where we definitely have had the, the equivalent of the Pharaoh's armies. Yeah, yeah. And, and this doesn't mean that we're, that we're through to the promised land yet. And there will be a parting of 
the Jordan to get to the promised land. Same yeah. sort of miracle ending it as beginning it. We can look to these people because they were real examples as examples that we can follow. And I think it's it's important to realize that they have that, they can have available the speaking in the mind and the heart. And at this point, they haven't even entered into the covenant. But they have enough that they can go ahead with. Um, one of my favorite lines in the book of Abraham is Abraham said, I have sought thee diligently. Thy servant hath sought thee diligently, and now I have found thee. Thou didst send thy angel to deliver me, and I will do well to hearken to thy voice. Yeah. This is Abraham. This is not yet an Abraham who's willing to sacrifice his son, but it is an Abraham who's willing, based on what he's proven in the past, to go forward with the steps he needs to take at that moment. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And and the Israelites are in that tutelage right now. And some will learn it and some will not. So well, well we're we're about to wrap up this chapter, which is probably a good place for us to wrap up. But what would you say about uh the, the finishing of this story? The waters return. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and this is the exact same it says stretch forth the hand to uh, open the sea, it stretched forth his hand to close it. The waters return, uh, and apparently somewhat quickly and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them, not all of the hosts of Pharaoh, but that part of it. And there remained not so much as one of them. Yeah. And maybe let's set the scene for that just a little bit in that uh, when the Egyptians finally start to get into the, the Red Sea, as we get uh, in, in uh, verse 24 and 25, uh, it took off their chariot wheels and they drove them heavily. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel. And I think this is part of that chariots don't work that well in the muck you go through in the uh, uh, bottom of the whatever body, uh, you know, wherever they're at. This is not what chariots are meant to travel through. Uh, yeah, and chariots being, there's, there are places where the, the Israelites can go through, the people and the animals, but they're a little more nimble. Yeah. And so if you need to step sideways, you can step sideways. You need to go forward. You can go forward um, and you can pick your way through that. Try driving a car through this, something like that. It doesn't work. Yeah. And this is an early version of a car. Yeah. And uh, so they have a lot more trouble with it. And at a certain point, your chariot gets stuck and it doesn't work. And it's an unusual situation for the Egyptians, too. Yeah. Yep. And, and then as they're stuck, they're sitting ducks for crashing walls of water. They, they can't overtake the Israelites. They can't get through to the other side. They can't get back. They are just there when the water comes back. And they don't even have any tow trucks. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and so you have this, uh, the Egyptians are removed from the equation at this point. And this is a time period when you have three or you have two big armies you have the hittites and the egyptians in the mm-hmm. ancient world and they've just taken out the egyptians and so they are not an issue anymore and in fact um it's a time period in egyptian history where they've been less successful militarily and they lose their empire about this time 
Yeah. I mean, it's probably just after the loss of the empire, but they still have an army. They, yeah, it's, but, it's in the waning days, probably. I mean, it's, we don't know exactly when this story takes place, but most likely this is in its waning days. Yeah. So they'll, the, the next battles that they will fight will be on Egyptian territory. Yeah. And we can say that because the battles come that we know about next are the ones in Merhaptah's range. And he mentions Israel as being up in Cana. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he fights battles both in Egyptian territory and he's still making some forays up north, trying to maintain or regain some of what they've been losing. Right. But it's this kind of losing battle, but it seems like just before this is in some ways, Egypt's heyday, right. We're just right on that. Yeah. That cutting edge, depending upon when this story happens, but we're right on that cutting edge of uh, the the loss of that golden empire, as it were. Right. It, it It's still the point where they wouldn't be saying, make it Egypt great again, but it's not far away. Yeah. And and the, the funny thing is, you look in the Egyptian records, and they don't know this is coming. Yeah. And there's nothing, even after the... It, this that would indicate that Egypt's glory days are for the time being past. No. Uh, you, you wouldn't know that from the records that they left. They didn't know it at the time, but things were going to change and it changed with the Israelites. So if you look at the international scene, there's a lot of commotion going on no. and some uncertainties, lots of wars and rumors of wars and nobody knows how this is going to turn out. I'm not sure that the, the Israelites were necessarily paying attention to the international scene, but they they fit in an unusual. Yeah. And they had to pay attention at least a little bit in terms of they had to be nervous about larger groups coming through and what would happen, right? You always well, have to look for and that. And they are obviously nervous about going into the, they're scared to death to go into the, yeah, the, the promised land. Canaan, yeah. And so end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah. You know, when with benefit of many hundred years of hindsight, we can see, yeah, it probably would have been okay to go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Maybe we can uh, end on, on this note. We've got uh, where it says in verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel on that day. And by the uh, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And then verse thirty-one, and Israel saw the great work which the Lord did uh, upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. So they have now seen what will become the the, the exhibit par excellence of God's delivering power, and they understand God's power, and they believe Him, and they believe that Moses represents God and, and that miracles will happen for them when they follow Moses. Now they're going to have a hard time staying consistent with that, but I'd, I'd like to invite us all to think about that in our own lives. It's worth taking the time to think about the times where you have seen the, that the prophet is inspired or that the uh, inspiration that you acted on uh, bless your life. Even if it's something like, you know, I, I can remember for me, one of the things that was powerful was President Benson saying, if you read the Book of Mormon, this and this and this and this will happen. And I did those things and those things happened. And then I knew and believed the Lord and his servant, Ezra Taft Benson. If you, I think it's important to recognize when you've had those experiences and write them down and remember them and think on them frequently. 
That way we can avoid the inconsistency that we'll see with the children of Israel after this. And hopefully we all stay in where they were at the end of this chapter, where we believe God and his servant. Um, I'll make one other pitch on, on making it real and remembering, doing what you said, remembering it is because the Israel was commanded to remember this every year at Passover. And if you read the old Testament, they didn't do this. And there were times they did, and then they seem to have totally forgotten. And, but then they remembered again around the time of Josiah and they keep that. And one of the things that we find in the exile, when the few things that they did do is continue to remember the Passover when they're in exile. And so one of the, and that's one of the only religious sort of documents we have outside the Bible that tells us what they were doing at that time, and that's Passover. So there is that remembrance factor. And that's one of the reasons I think why, why the, the Jews in, in their exile remembered the Lord, where the 10 tribes of Israel didn't do that, that we know of, and lost their identity. It's part of that remembering, and it's part of what Moroni commands us to do, to remember how merciful the Lord has been from the creation of man down to the time that you receive the things, and particularly the things that he's done in your own life. Agreed. Uh, remembering is one of the biggest themes of the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon. And in fact, I, I mean, I haven't planned this far ahead, but I can't imagine that when we get to Deuteronomy that we won't talk about that. <laughs> it's a big it's all over the place. So. Yeah, uh, and it is in the Book of Mormon as well. So I would agree if they if they had remembered the way they felt in verse thirty one, we would have a different story in the Book of Numbers. Let's say, but they didn't, and so we need to take a lesson from that. Learn to be wiser than they have been. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. And thanks thank to our, our audience. Uh, this is one of the greatest stories of all time. I mean, just period. It is one of the greatest stories of all time. I'll, I'll do a little short cast on chapter 15 where we can uh, visit a little bit more about it. But uh, I'm grateful to be in Egypt talking about this story with, uh, with John Gee. And I hope that if you have enjoyed this, that you'll... Uh, let others know about it. Uh, the more we can uh, have other people helped in making the scriptures real, the better off the world will be. So thank you and have a great day.